0: Hi and welcome back to the Guru Performance We Do Science Podcast. Today is episode four. Now, before I um, introduce you to today's guest, I just want to make sure that everyone um, understands just what a miracle today's episode is going to be. I'm actually uh, speaking to you all from uh, my office uh, in the middle of, um, interestingly, what uh, the British uh, weather people have called Storm Doris. Um, so I have uh, no electricity, no internet, nothing. Now, of course, you're all thinking uh, that's just a load of BS because I can hear you. Um, so I have my phone stuck to a window. I've got a wood burner going on. And uh, by, uh, by whatever it takes, we're going to get this podcast done. So um, that uh, being said, um, I do believe that my guest has had an, uh, not quite the same scenario. But um, today we have Dr. Michael Joyner uh, from the Mayo Clinic in the States. Hi, Mike. How are you doing?
1: Hi Lauren, great, how are you?
0: Well, <laughs> we'll see, we'll see how things go. Um, a couple of hours ago, my uh, all my alarms were going off because all the batteries had run out of juice. So um, I kid you not, I literally had my phone taped to a window just to tether my laptop. So uh, I really hope that everyone appreciates what it's taken to get you here. And you had emailed me saying that uh, you were getting for a snowstorm or
1: something. Yeah, we had 25 centimeters of snow overnight and apparently there's another 20 on the way. Wow. And because it's uh, late February, uh, it's wet, heavy, thick snow. Well, you know, be, being a Brit, I like
0: talking about the weather, Mike. <laughs> well, us English, we love talking about the weather. So that's the best way to start this podcast. So
1: here, here, here in Minnesota, we say that if, if you don't like the weather, wait 30 minutes, it'll change. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Um,
0: so um, what I wanted to talk about today was possibly a mix um, of topics. Um, i uh, as the listeners know i'm I'm sort of very much into this idea of science to practice um I'm always banging on about context all the time because I think that's extremely important um but i'm I've also been exploring a lot of things recently with a variety of of guests which ultimately is taking the evidence and then we're unpacking this into a a real world environment and all sorts of gems come up um with each of the guests. And the last couple of um, people I've spoken to, um, Shona Halson from the Australian Institute of Sport, we're talking about recovery, what we know, and more, more importantly, what we actually don't know about recovery and the assumptions that everyone seems to make from lab to, to practice. And also uh, Dr. Stavros Kvoros about hydration. And, you know, a lot of the similar things are, are coming up. There's There's stuff that we talk about um being relevant um in science in that very neatly controlled environment that, that that world is um but then of course in in the real world we come across very different scenarios which could be very simply that yeah you know it sounds like a good idea but in reality we just can't do these things because um there's no electricity uh, or uh, the individual doesn't like the taste of of the supplement or you know there's all sorts of stuff and um, with yourself having a medical background as well as being an expert in human performance I thought it, this would make a good chat particularly because I, I, I have read a number of your papers and I, I want to get on to one of them which has been out for a few years now but the physiology of champions paper I love that paper um, and we'll get into that but also you've written a series of articles for Sports Illustrated on a variety of topics The the one that really got me was um, the one about lactic acid or or lactate, Um, and it's, uh, you know, the myths that are associated with that, which I think really lend themselves well to this. Um, So this this will be interesting to see how we we kick this off. But first, if you could just explain to the listeners um, who you are and, and what sort of things you get up to.
1: Well, yeah, my name is Mike Joyner, as you mentioned. I'm an anesthesiologist and a physiologist at the Mayo Clinic. A long, long time ago, I was a pretty good distance runner. I ran a 225 marathon in the late 1970s, and I tell people I was uh, good enough to be lapped by Alberto Salazar in a 10K meet, in a big regional 10K meet. So I've had an interest in this for some time, and I have a, a lab where I work four days a week. I do clinical medicine one day a week, and in my lab, we're interested in a number of things, control of skeletal muscle blood flow, aging some very interesting things about the autonomic nervous system and blood pressure. And then this whole idea about human performance and what makes a champion. Uh, what are the determinants of human performance and, and what we know about them and, and what we can learn from things like world records and, and how we can do intellectual serve and volley learn between um, what we see in the field and what we can learn from really data mining the public record to what we. Uh, might know, learn in the lab or know from the lab.
0: Yeah, I, I think, I mean, what, as one delves into this stuff, it gets really interesting because, of course, we're talking about people who are very unusual when we talk about champions. And um, there was a, another paper f- that I read recently, um, and I'll be damned if I can find it. I think it was called "Plaudits and Pundits. It's a Mike Stone Paper uh, from many many years ago, but he's going on a lot about, or he's trying to champion this idea of actually doing research on individuals um, in the real world, sort of n of one stuff, as opposed to, you know, just trying to do these these studies on groups of people and then involving a lot of stats and drawing conclusions from that stuff, where a lot of the real stuff kind of gets lost. But for you, what, you know, going back to that physiology of champion type concept, what what led you to going down that path, I mean being a medical doctor as well.
1: Right, well when, when uh, I actually, uh, when I was quite young, 19, I got recruited to be a subject in Pete Farrell's uh, lactate threshold study in the later 1970s where uh, Pete with Eddie Coyle, Dave Costell and Jack Wilmore showed that running speed at lactate threshold was highly correlated to marathon speed and also um, uh, 10k and other performances. And they started to piece together how maximal oxygen uptake, the lactate threshold, and efficiency or running economy uh, work together. And there'd been a lot of work on that in the 1970s. Things came into more focus in the 80s and 90s. And one of the things that Eddie Coyle, my co-author on that paper, and I tried to do was just try to put together and ask ourselves how maximal oxygen uptake, uh, the lactate threshold, or, or muscle metabolism perhaps, along with ideas about efficiency or economy, work together to influence endurance performance in a variety of sports. Now, the ones that have been best studied are obviously distance running and cycling. Much less is known, for example, about swimming and cross-country skiing, or, or, or speed skating for that matter. But we tried to think about those things and ask how these, this puzzle is put together and, and what are the physiological determinants of those three key factors, maximal oxygen uptake, lactate threshold or some measure of muscle metabolism uh and also efficiency or economy
0: yeah actually i i remember from reading uh, the paper i read it again earlier today and in your introduction on on that physiology of champions paper you, you make a, an interesting point which is prevalent really about how we study this stuff and how we look at it as coaches or or whatever and um you mentioned here that you know faster higher stronger um these simple descriptions or terms have been of interest to, to humans since the beginning of recorded history and if we rather than just humans to history if we talk about sports science which i mean ultimately isn't exactly old i mean you guys talk about our you know the the the, the original researchers you know um like saltine and and that lot i mean that's actually that's god i hate to say it, but that's in my time frame um that really isn't very long ago relative to say medicine or the other disciplinary fields like physics, biology and so on. So, I mean, this is new stuff, isn't it?
1: Well, Lauren, it's interesting because if you think about it, um, exercise physiology comes out of work physiology. So if you if you look at what happened in the Victorian era, uh, say after 1860 or 1870, uh, the second industrial revolution starts and people are involved in a lot of factory and mechanized labor uh, under harsh physical conditions. And people began to wonder, what do you have to do to actually literally maximize productivity? How do you have to feed people? Do you need to worry about the air quality? So on and so forth. At the same time, you see a sort of hygiene movement occurring. This hygiene movement, most notably, is about water, clean water. But there was also concerns about uh, uh, social hygiene and things like temperance movements and, and so on and so forth. There was, and one of the things that came from this was what was called physiological hygiene. Many of the early laboratories uh, were described as physiological hygiene labs, and they were trying to figure out what the working conditions should be in factories and so forth. So some of the very, very early work in work physiology, for example, at the Harvard Fatigue Lab uh, and, and other places, certain places in the United Kingdom, Italy, France, Germany, was about working conditions for factory workers. And uh, the Pierce Foundation Lab at, at Yale, uh, a well-known applied and exercise environmental physiology lab, was, was founded by a man or endowed by a man who was interested in air quality and factories. And so what happened is, is people moved from work physiology. And if you read the papers from 1900, you know, some of them are about what do you need to feed a lumberjack? Uh, or what do you need to feed a coal miner? And this occurred at the same time people were talk, starting to talk about 10-hour workdays, six days a week, and, and, and so a whole lot of social things happened. And then people like A.V. Hill, Bruce Dill, Christensen, August Krogh, and others began to study athletes because they had the equipment to do so. And certainly A.V. Hill with his auction, de- auction deficit ideas it made some tremendous analyses of world records that I think in the paper you mentioned, we have a reference to that, and in the Lancet or the British Medical Journal, he's got a terrific paper in the middle 1920s about fatigue and athletic performance. By the middle 1930s, uh, Sid Robinson and Bruce Still in Harvard were starting to measure VO2 max in in the men at that time who were running, you know, 405, 406, 408 miles, and they were they were showing that these men who were only uh, training very modestly by today's standards had VO2 max values in the middle to upper 70s and then you go on world war ii starts and 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 goes on and there's a whole lot of this that happens in world war ii some of the uh, best and and foundational thermal regulation studies come from from studies uh, around world war ii because they were concerned about taking people from cool european or, or north american and climates and what would happen to them in jungle or, or desert environments and so forth and then after the war you start with Jeremy Morris to start people start thinking about exercise and, and cardiovascular disease so you have several streams going on here and, and this is where exercise physiology and, and the current interest in, in physical activity and health sort of stem from but a lot of it starts with these concerns about physiological hygiene factory work and, and fatigue and literally economic productivity from around
0: 1900 yes it's fascinating when you start to look at the animal that we refer to as an athlete um, and the evolution of what that animal is and, and and how we choose to interpret that terminology because of course 40 years ago people um, weren't engaging in exercise in a recreational fashion. At least not how we are today. I know my father's in his mid 80s, and he was right. telling me um, when he went into the military, um, he you know he he had a particularly easy time because he was he was a like a, um, a an athlete if you like a college athlete. Uh, But most of his compatriots that he went into basic training with (laughs) would just had the equivalent of desk jobs. And um, they had a very different experience. But, of course, um, nowadays, lots of people are involved in some form of exercise or not. Of course, they might counter that with sitting on their butts all day long and not actually doing anything. And there's that whole argument of just how meaningful is 30 minutes of exercise. Or if you want to go – and we will touch on this possibly if we have time later – these ideas of – um you know shortened exercise sessions like interval training right um to take advantage of people with um who are time bankrupt so to speak right Um, but going back to the, the the physiology of champions um i mean given a lot of what we're reading today and what we think of particularly where myths come from um has very much come from the history if you like of knowledge going back over the last 40 years. You know, one sort of era feeds into another, and of course that, that sort of drives the directions that we go. Do you feel um, that where we're going with this is, is a, a, a productive direction, or, or should we maybe be pressing reset um,
1: on, on this? Well, well, I think, you know, the question of science and the question of, of, of research and the question of, uh, even if you're thinking about coaching, you know it goes back to sort of what is the purpose of this workout. So, what are people's goals? Are people's goals to improve public health? Are they uh, to make people happier? Are they to break world records? Are they to um, you talked about time bankrupt people? Are they uh, to help people get the most bang for their their buck in in the aging uh, world that we live in now, are they to try to keep people from getting frail, old and dependent and living in in care homes? So you have to ask, what are the goals of what we're trying to accomplish? And you also have to think, Lauren, about how some ideas have recycled. Uh, I find the current interest in high-intensity interval training uh, quite interesting uh, in the context of what Amos Adepep was doing, in the context of what um, the Eastern Europeans were doing in general in the uh, 50s, uh, what Roger Bannister did in his famous 10 times 400 meters workout, and also, even before that, a man, uh, really a kind of a forgotten man in the history of human performance is a, is a German called Rudolf Harbig, who um, set some tremendous world records in the late 1930s that stood uh, until the 1950s. And he was one of the first, uh, with Reindel and Gerstler, uh, uh, people to really engage in intense interval training. So I see, see sort of what goes around, comes around, you see people taking a more naturalistic, let's go run on the trails approach. That would be very common to somebody like Percy Sarity or or the um, or the uh, fins interested in fartlek training many years ago So when I see things coming around and and recycling, I also see things recycling at the scientific level uh, You know when you think about the work of John Hollisey, Bank Alteen, Phil Golnick and others in the 60s and 70s on muscle fiber type um, ideas about mitochondrial density and so forth and so on, those are being, uh, I wouldn't say recapitulated, but revisited with uh, newer tools about signaling, mTOR, uh, PGC1-alpha, AMP kinase, and so forth as people drill a little deeper. So, so I think uh, you, you, know, you see things recycling. The, the work of Jeremy Morris on public health, the work of uh, um, uh, other people on aging, uh, coming back as people get new to, tools and new perspectives.
0: Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with you more. I've, I've interviewed loads of people. I mean, this is the 94th one we've gone everywhere from molecular signaling to, um, you just mentioned interval training. I've interviewed Marty Gabala uh, a couple of years Great. ago now. We, we need to revisit his newer work. But um, what, what, one thing that always strikes me, and I mean, my, my, I'm a physiologist, but I'm a, and a strength and conditioning coach is my background, but my main interest is nutrition. Um, But I do find a lot of attention goes into something from a performance perspective, which can be extremely marginal in terms of outcomes. On the other hand, one of the best things about nutrition can be health. But sports science tends to focus more on the bigger, faster, stronger side of things than on the implications of a healthy athlete um, and how that might influence the development of that person into a champion G- given your medical background yeah. well, I mean what do you think about that um in terms of you know maybe too much focus on performance at the expense of health if if that's even well, well I,
1: I think that the issue here is is that you know consistent training is the key mm. and you can't train consistently if you're injured unhealthy and whether that is psychologically burned out or you, you have a discrete injury, or you have this general fatigue and are physiologically burned out. And I think one of the things that, that continues to recycle, uh, whether it was the old Soviet thinking about periodization of training, whether it was Bill Bowerman, the great coach uh, for the University of Oregon and one of the founders of Nike, talking about hard, easy training. I think one of the things people have to understand is you'll know, make your hard days hard and your easy days easy. And I think one of the things that happens is is people say, "Well, I train harder, I get faster, I get better, I get stronger." So then they train harder still, and you get into this marginal gains, and then you risk you risk injury. I think the other interesting thing about that is the emergence of of, of you know these uh athletes. Uh, in many, many, many disciplines, you know, the average age of the champions drifted upwards from early to middle twenties, into their thirties, or even in some cases, or are, are people in their forties doing well. And if you look at the people who are continuing to do well in their middle thirties and early forties, these are individuals who through dumb luck have avoided injury or have figured out a way to modulate their training. And ask a few simple questions. You know, what is the purpose of this workout? How do I avoid getting burned out? And they've also taken, I think, adva- advantage, you know, of advances in sports medicine. People, the younger people won't realize this, but but orthopedic surgery, which we now do with scopes, and people return to activity and at least training very quickly. I mean, people after uh, anterior cruciate ligament ACL repair used to be in whole leg cast for six eight weeks. And some of them never recovered from that. So so our, our whole um, sports medicine, getting people back to play and, and recovery, the phys- physios have done a terrific job, the orthopedic surgeons and so forth. But I, I think the if people don't carefully control their training load, they can easily get into a cycle of overtraining, injury, and burnout, which... Uh, um, is is difficult, but I like to tell people they need to avoid the uh, Protestant work ethic uh, avoided to to their training. So more isn't necessarily better. Smarter is better.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh no, definitely. Train smarter, not harder. Um, I I mean, it's difficult because there are so many different things about this world that the athlete lives in. there are very interesting problems that come up, especially with some of the athletes that I work with, um, rugby players and boxers and so on, who, you know, they're, they're getting constantly bombarded by information, whether it's social media, what their friends have heard, right. what they read. Um, they're, they're, I, I mean, it would be interesting to hear your perspective on the emergence of the expert um, whether it's health-related, yeah. I mean, there are so many people telling people what they should do. <laughs> it's
1: it's got to right, be hard. Right. So, so, so there's a man named, think about it, healthy aging. There's a man named Lester Breslow, who's a famous epidemiologist who died at age 97 a few years ago. And Breslow was one of the first people to study healthy aging. And so he went around uh, the Oakland, San Francisco area and found a bunch of people who had made it to 90. And figured out what these individuals did well none of them smoked they were all physically active none of them were fat Uh, they were careful about their alcohol intake and uh, they were all somehow engaged in life through strong families Uh, you know some of them were continuing to work in a family business religious organizations fraternal organizations whatever it might be so those five key factors are what dr. Breslow identified and if you can identify a few key factors and apply them uh, Religiously, I think you do pretty well. I mean think about strength training In my time I've seen circuit training. I've seen Olympic lifting. I've seen power lifting I've seen all the top teams try different things Uh, There was tremendous interest in something called nautilus machines in the late 60s and and early to middle 70s and if you look at it they all worked in and they all developed championship teams and when you drill backwards or drill down on it there was a a regimented and good program associated with each one. They were applied diligently and and people, you know, did the work. So, you know, and, and if you look at the strength training literature coming from Stu Phillips, I mean, people get the same amount of hypertrophy if they push a muscle to failure, whether they do lower reps versus higher reps. So you get a, a few key principles like that. And, and what happens is people get into this noise about this monitor, that monitor. When the moon is full, you should take this supplement. When the moon is full, you shouldn't take that supplement, or you should do X, Y, or Z. So I think what people have to ask themselves are or what are the five or six key fundamentals? How do you do them in a way that works for you, and how do you apply them? And, and I think, Lauren, you'll see some of the most successful coaches uh, have the simplest programs. They have the thinnest playbooks. And they, they focus instead on, on on execution of a few fundamentals on a consistent basis. Yeah,
0: well, then, no, I mean, there's clearly more than one way to achieve a goal, isn't there? And uh, right. I guess the one area that I find interesting, particularly from a nutritional intervention perspective, is it's not so much how cool and clever the intervention is, it's, it's how how well the person buys into it because yeah. that influences heavily their compliance. And of course, compliance is uh, is a major issue with that sort of thing.
1: So there's a terrific study about weight loss in the Journal of American Medical Association where people took a relatively large number of people and put them on one of four branded diets, uh, ranging from something that's very very uh, low-carb to something that was high-carb, low-fat, right? And they showed that at the end of the year, Everybody lost about three or four kilos on this on each of the four diets, but then they plotted the adherence score versus weight loss and the people who had the highest adherence score lost 10 or 15 kilos and It was independent of the diet. So the adherence score was more important than the actual type of diet per se And I think that's what you see with training. One of my favorite examples is the 1964 5,000 meter final at Tokyo, where you have Bob Shule from the United States winning, a man named Harold Norpoth um, uh, from Germany getting second, and and Bill Dellinger getting third from, from the United States. You also have Ron Clark in the race, who was, uh, you know, I think, held about 20 world records over the course of his career, and a young Kip Kano from Kenya. Uh, um, Shule did classical interval training, Igloi style interval training, where he did intervals in the morning, intervals in the afternoon, uh, NorPOth did long slow distance training, and Dellinger did the sort of mixed training we would do today. But if you drill down on it, they were training 90 minutes to two hours a day. There were some high quality training uh, every day, ranging from a few miles to so quite a, a bit. And they had all done enough to get their VO2 max as high as it was going to go. They'd all done enough to get their muscle mitochondria as high as it was going to go, and they had all done enough uh, to do whatever was going to happen to their efficiency. And one of the interesting things about that race, it was run on a muddy dirt track at Tokyo in the rain, and uh, uh, um, Shul's last 300 meters was faster than Mo Farah's was in in 2012 on a on a muddy muddy dirt track. So so again, I think that just shows you that these three men and their coaches had all had reasonable plans. They had all uh, you know hit the main bases or main touch points and they had all been highly, highly successful. And you see the same things whether it's strength training, diet, uh, aging, um, uh, endurance exercise. There are five or six key principles for each thing. And If you can uh, get a plan that works for you or works for your athletes, uh, I think you're in pretty good shape. So here, as you're saying that, I'm
0: thinking of a question I wanna ask you, and uh, this will be interesting to see how this this goes down. So do you think, we're given all the, I mean, look, we're talking stuff we learn now from biopsies, 24 hour chambers, we're swallowing radioactive materials, we're doing all sorts of stuff. Um, but are we getting better through science at developing champions, let's say? Or is it we're just getting better at finding people to participate in these sports and through that sort of process of natural selection, we're now whittling it down? to finding those people uh, via that route. I mean, what you know, how are we Let's take the, the second part of the question. Yeah.
1: So if if you look at, at uh, you know, I tell people when they they say, you know, should my child get their DNA swabbed to see what mm. they'll be good at, I tell I use the British rowing start program as an example, which is are you tall, do you like to work out, do you have some aerobic power, can you do some pull-ups? And those are very, very uh, applied, almost 1950s, 1960s style field testing from physical education. The same is true in the National Football League for US Football, where you know they're not interested in somebody's DNA. They're interested in their vertical jump. So one of the things that happens as you get into the lab, you're able to drill down farther and farther and farther. But if you, you get into where you have signal-to-noise problems and you need an integrative test, which is sort of a summing circuit. Uh, just like there are many, many things that can happen to your blood pressure, but, but really what matters from your health is, is your blood pressure. So if you want to find out you know, who can jump high, have them jump. Because you might have the right kind of muscle fibers, but maybe your biomechanics aren't right, maybe one leg's shorter than the next, maybe you just don't have the skills as a jumper. So I think there's always this serve and volley between sort of applied field testing, which gives you a summing circuit, and high signal to noise on an integrative test versus can we drill down on a mechanism? Can we drill down on a mechanism? So there's a, a, a balance between kind of whole body uh, holistic testing and, and, and some of these uh, reductionist approaches. And you see that throughout life, throughout society, whether you're talking about particle physics or, 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 um, or, or physiology and, and health. And you get it. You get it the same way when you drill backwards into into the health effects. Do we worry about, um, you know, this exercise prescription is best for person X on day Y, or do we make it easy for people to do active transportation and get the whole population to increase their their physical activity on average by 10 or 15 minutes a day? What's the best strategy? Uh, Do we tell people to not smoke and focus on the individual or do we just raise the cigarette taxes? I mean, there is a whole collection of things like that that people need to think about. And again, what is the question? Are we trying to help a given individual or are we trying to move a group of individuals? So I think that's where you you mentioned earlier about context. and, And so that's what I tell people. All discussions about diet and exercise are context specific. What are you trying to accomplish? Who are you trying to accomplish it in? Are you trying to win gold medals? Or are you trying to increase population life longevity by a couple of years?
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. And you mentioned reductionism. I mean, the, the, the whole sort of scientific reductionism thing is a bit of a problem um, I'm, I'm, I'm realizing, really. Uh, I, I guess if, if one was to look at different areas of science and you look at how they go about conducting their research and their studies and how much faith they put into their findings. I mean, you, you, t- you talk about research behind the more medical things, um, vast numbers of people, usually, also, you know, ex- extremely significant level of ethic ethics go behind these things, all sorts of stuff's going on. You know, th- I'm thinking large metabolic ward studies or even just massive randomized control studies and so on. Right. But, if we, but if we come to sports science, you know you you're looking at a fairly common study that that that's deemed to be half decent you know with 15 to 30 people now i i know i had a conversation with an epidemiologist the other day and he was like you can't determine anything from that number of people so i mean it it you know, it is interesting how much in sports science we take from these studies particularly when what we're studying is Students or average members of the public that we manage right. to recruit, not necessarily right. those outliers, you know.
1: And, and I think that's one of the things you know, this came up a lot, uh, you know, in the whole discussion about Lance Armstrong and doping and just doping in general. And what I tell my journalist friends is, look, if you win a 10,000 meters by one percent, you win by a hundred meters, which is an unheard of margin in an elite competition. Uh, so. Can and If you look at the measured day-to-day measurement error, error, uh, Lauren, in, in VO2 max testing, lactate threshold determination, whatever it might be, it's much higher than 1%. So people are looking you know, for these tiny, tiny margins, which are really beneath the level of detectability uh, in many cases in the lab. So you could say, is it physiological? Is it psychological? Does it just increase your odds slightly of having a slightly better day? On a given day, so you know these are these are highly individualized sorts of things, and so when you go from the statistical to the individual, uh, it's it becomes very very challenging. That's also true with medical treatments. You know, when when you start thinking about uh, if you do a gazillion people with this trial, will they on average help them? But will some have side effects? Will some do worse? Will some do better? Trying to figure out who's going to do better, this becomes very very challenging. And, and phenotyping humans at the granularity uh, necessary to predict who's going to win a race or how somebody's going to get 1% better is very, very challenging, if not impossible, when you start thinking about the measurement error of of your techniques versus the margin of victory in some of these races, which is much less than 1%. Much less than
0: 1%. Yeah, no, I mean, it's... Actually, I always find it interesting that sports scientists or sports nutritionists in my context. you know usually i'm bumping into people who who and i'm talking about regular recreational athletes they'll be like oh i'm not sure what you have to offer is for people like me it's a bit too advanced i'm like you have no idea it's so i can get much bigger <laughs> results with you guys You're than right. i can with the athletes uh, this is it's, i always find that interesting but but I, I am a proponent of sort of, you know, testing and not guessing. And I I love physiological testing. Right. Um, often, you know, it, it's interesting what one discovers in that process. It can be very simple things like someone's a bit overweight. Well, obviously, that has massive implications for performance. Right. But, but in some of your papers, just going back to the like this yep. thing about the physiology of champions and some of those Sports Illustrated articles. There are things that come up all the time, like lactate threshold and VO two max. Right, um, and you know that, as you said at the beginning, of that paper. You know, we're obsessed with getting faster, higher, stronger. So we wanna, we want that, we want that highest number for VO two max. Uh, we, we're obsessed with the lactate. Threshold. Um, we're, you know, we're we're assuming, um, although obviously this has been blown apart now, but you know, that um, the the, the lactate is responsible for the uh, sore muscles or that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah,
1: it's it's an evil humor that must be, oh, uh, you know, being yeah. driven out of the out of the out of the world. But but, Lauren, if I look at it, you know, if you think about these things, okay. So what do we know? We know there's been pretty good measurements of VO two max and true champions since the twenties or thirties. And certainly a man named Glenn Cunningham, ran a 404 mile, running about uh, really 20 kilometers a week back in the 1930s. His VO2 max was between 75 and 80. That's quite clear. And if you look at the sort of training he did, he was either running five miles, eight kilometers, as hard as he could a couple days a week, or he was running a mile doing three times 600 all out and running a mile. And, and, and he, that was about four days a week of his training the rest of the time he stretched and quote did gymnastics Whatever that means and he ran a 404 mile doing this so Anyways, you look at that and 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 so he had a vo2 max and certainly the data from the 50s in Scandinavia There were a number of individuals parallel uh, post and then later in the 60s the bank team and others showed some of these individuals with high vo2 max values. so so you think about what's going to come next it's unlikely that we're going to suddenly have a huge group of people with VO2 maxes of 90. Still going to be quite unusual to find people much higher than 80 and really the ticket to the game is going to be a VO2 max in the middle or higher 70s. So we've known that. We've known for years that these individuals can exercise for prolonged periods at 85 maybe 90% of their VO2 max without producing a whole lot of prolactic lactic acid. Now, whether it's the lactate that's the evil humor or not, or whether that just shows the muscles not in steady state is a separate issue. We know that's related to capillary density and especially muscle mitochondrial content. And we know a whole lot about the basic biology of those things. And we know also that after 90 minutes or two hours of training per day, those typically don't continue to rise. So then we get to the the efficiency economy situation and what have we seen we've seen aero bikes that have been definitive i mean the great eddie merrick's had an hour uh cycle time trial in the early 1970s it it wasn't broken until they let people use aero bikes essentially i mean it might have been broken by a few hundred meters but it wasn't broken until people got better bikes look at the improvements in speed skating you have the clap skate which improves efficiency and you have the suits and so forth. Look at uh the the band suits in swimming, and also look at the um, um, you know the the lane lines now buffer the waves more. they've got gutters in the pool designed to make the water as flat as possible. look at designs of or uh, uh, the, the, the the blades in 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 rowing the oars have changed so if you look at what's happened in the last say forty years in endurance performance, a lot of it is Technical things that have pr- improved efficiency or economy. Running has lagged a little bit, with the exception of better tracks, you know. And when you read about this, you know, both the Nike and Adidas trying to uh, go after this two-hour marathon, uh, which is 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 sort of stems from our physiology of champions ideas. If you look at that, what are they focused on? They're focused on drafting. They're focused on some nutritional things to increase carbohydrate utilization and improve efficiency. And, you know, they're, they're, they're focused on maybe improvements in shoe technology that would give you a percent here or a percent there in terms of running economy or efficiency. So in terms of the, the, the VO2 max metabolic sort of thing, I think, you know, people have been there for a while. They've been training as hard as possible since the 1950s or 1960s. And a lot of what's happened most recently is, is associated with efficiency or economy. In sports where there's been big jumps in that, primarily for technological reasons, there's been improvements in records, and in, in sports where that's been a little bit slower to come by, less improvement.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I've uh, uh, been doing a lot of research in the development of expertise, uh, particularly in um, mm-hmm. expert human performance, i.e. in practitioners, it's an area of research that we're interested in. And you, you do keep coming back to this thing about deliberate practice. Um, And and one thing that can differentiate, um, you know, sort of competent practitioners um, from really, really good ones is, you know, it can be little things, uh, which aren't little things, of course, like experience, learning from making mistakes. There's there's all sorts of stuff that's interesting. And, of course, the same thing goes for for athletes who, who, you know, demonstrate expertise in their chosen field. So, of course, deliberate practice becomes an important thing. And if you look, talking of history, you, you look back on what athletes used to do, you know, 40, 50 years ago. I mean, one thing that's pretty clear is they didn't train as much.
1: Well, and I think that, I think that depends on the sport. Mm. Certainly, Emil Zadepec was training as hard as anybody is now. Certainly, Ron Clark were. So, in distance running, and running, yeah. Yeah, and running—that's certainly the case. Uh, and you look at somebody like Gary Player, who was an early adopter in in a skill sport of strength training and sort of cross training. So certainly there were early adopters like Gary Player. You know, now in the, in the professional golf circuit, you know, they have a—you a, now have these guys are very very buff compared to what they used to look like, except for Gary Player. So I think there were early adopters throughout all of this, and I think this goes back to your first, your your your, your earlier question. Is that so? You're you're a skill sport athlete, you know. You're involved in golf or or tennis or whatever. And now somebody's told you you need to strength train, you need to do yoga, you need to do Pilates, you need to do this, you need to do that. And at some point, where is the law of diminishing returns? And more importantly, how much psychic energy and focus do you have to do these sorts of things? And I think that becomes the balancing sort of thing. And then I think the other thing with the um, you know, we, we have uh, an outstanding uh, sports orthopedic surgeon here named Dr. Mike Stewart, and he and, and Dr. Diane Dom are really considered the uh, leading experts in the United States on, on treatment of athletic injuries. So all sorts of elite athletes come to the Mayo Clinic for second opinions from Mike and Diane. And uh, Diane's also an, an interesting person because she's uh, a terrific athlete herself, but, uh, but first, unusual that we don't have a lot of female orthopedic surgeons. Secondly, she's not the biggest person on earth, and she's the team physician for an NBA team. So you see this person <laughs> who's just over, just over, you know, just over, uh, you know, maybe 160 centimeters standing next to these guys. Wow, giants! Who were, you know two meters, uh, uh, two meters twenty, yeah. and, and, and 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 they're looking at her, you know, like like uh, she's uh, you know truth is coming down from the mountain when she's dealing with them. And so she's a, a super interesting person. But, but they sometimes get people, and, and myself and, and one of the infectious disease uh, doctors sometimes talk to these athletes. And one of the things we've learned is that the personal trainers get into an arms race. You know, Joe Blow is doing 30 minutes a day of X. Well, let's do 35 minutes a day of X. And somebody else is doing something else. And so eventually people keep adding, and they never take, it becomes like a sedimentary rock. They never take anything away. And eventually, whether it's physical or whether it's mental, I mean, how much can people train? And I think what can happen also is you can inadvertently add things so that your easy days are no longer easy because you're doing, you know, uh, hot yoga on your easy days or whatever it might be. And even if it's not physically demanding, it's psychologically demanding. So I think one of the things that I've thought about in the past is I always sometimes wonder in terms of the whole burnout thing and injury thing, if people weren't a little bit better off, um, at least in some ways, when guys had to have jobs or at least part-time jobs. Yeah, And, 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 and you know, look at, at distance running in the United Kingdom. I mean, distance running was quite strong in the amateur era. And these guys, I mean, you talk to Ron Hill and these guys, Dave Bedford, uh, Ron Mon, who's a, one of the great uh, guys, a generation older than me, one of the great exercise science and nutrition people, Ron was a terrific athlete, trained with those guys, and and he'll tell you, you know, they 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 uh, went to work, and he'll tell you that their rehydration included a stop at the pub. And some of those guys, you know, when you started counting for equipment tracks, the fact that the competitive opportunity, some of those guys were running pretty damn fast.
0: Yeah, I so this brings me back to. Um uh, the first paper I read of yours, which was your one on, um, uh, uh something along the lines of data modeling. Um, you, 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 were sort of looking at, uh, some very interesting areas to, to, um, sort of mathematically, uh, work out how to get a, you know, the fastest sort of possible marathon run. Yeah. Tell, us, tell awesome. us a bit about that. Cause that's really interesting what you did. There. So
1: I was sitting what happened was in, yeah. in um, Late in medical school in the middle 1980s, I'd taken a research elective, uh, and the medical school in Tucson, Arizona, where I went to to medical school, had a close linkage with the exercise science department, and three people were in that exercise science department. Charlie Tipton, who's a very famous man, Jack Wilmore, the late Jack Wilmore, who was also very, very well-known, and Doug Seals, currently at the University of Colorado, and Doug was a junior faculty member, and he and I were doing some studies together. And so I had gotten a uh, programmable calculator that looked something like this. Uh, It was a Texas instrument. It was an earlier version of this, a TI-25 or something. you could do, uh, you know, before all these laptops, and you could do all kinds of linear regressions and do different things. And so I just simply said, what was the range of VO2 max in lead athletes? And at the time, you know, Frank Shorter, who won the Olympics, had a max of around 70. Steve Premontane had a max of around 85, 84, and you went and looked through all this data that was out there, and that's the range you saw in elite endurance athletes. Then, as a result of all the lactate threshold sorts and quote anaerobic threshold sorts of studies done in the 70s and 80s, it became clear that people could maybe do 85% of their max for a couple of hours. And then there was some data on running economy, but it stopped at about. Um, Uh, 11 miles an hour or maybe 18 kilometers an hour. So I sent a man named Jack Daniels, who's a very well- Yeah. A (laughs) Jack Jack had uh, collected data on people, hadn't published a lot of it, but had collected a bunch of data on elite athletes running much faster. So Jack sent me some data, and I was able to kind of look at a range of running economies, and I simply said, what happens if the same person has the highest VO2 max kind of quote ever recorded or at the upper limits, you know, 84, 85? What happens if somebody was able to sustain 85% of that VO2 max for two hours? And what would happen if that same person had the best imaginable running economy? And the number came out slightly less than two hours, around 158 and change. Now, you know, and this was before people were thinking so much about genomics, and I pointed out a couple of things. One is that there may be things about fatigue we didn't understand, two is, we clearly didn't under, we knew a lot about VO2 max and the lactate threshold and, and its physiological or biological determinants. We knew very little about efficiency or economy, and that's still true. We know more now, but we still know way less compared to the other two. And third, you get into an argument about genetics. Perhaps, you know, the genetics associated with a very high VO2 max were one in a thousand. Perhaps with a very high lactate threshold or one in a thousand. Perhaps with the best possible running economy, it's one in a thousand. So if you start talking about uh, these sorts of rare biological uh, forms of ability, the odds of any person having all three are quite low. Now, that turned out to be both correct conceptually, because uh, what people have found with various genomic studies is the effect size of these variants are quite small. And, 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 and that occasionally, there are uh, rare variants that can make a difference. But, but it's become, become much more complex than that. But certainly the idea is to not run any kind of data so, are different. So, this just shows what happens with a, you know, yeah. what you w- can do with a calculator and a little bit of data. Yeah, no, it's very
0: cool. Um, and it, it's, it's, I mean, it just shows you how many things get in the way of that, you know, um, sort of computerized prediction of where we could get. There's all sorts of things we've yet to identify.
1: Um, which is exciting. Well, I think isn't like, it? The, see, and, and the value, there's two ways to look at the paper. One is I predicted somebody could break two hours, right? Mm. The other way to say is, is let's do modeling and then use modeling to identify gaps in our knowledge. So the original goal of the paper was to use modeling to identify gaps in our knowledge and say these new areas need additional attention. And, and, and certainly some, they've gotten the additional attention. You know, but occasionally it's, it's, it's uh, interpreted as you know, Joyner predicted somebody's going to break two hours. Certainly, I think that's physiologically um, uh, I wouldn't say possible, but certainly not impossible. It's with, with, with it, it, there's no physiological reason somebody shouldn't someday be able to break two hours, but getting the right athlete in the right race, on the right day, with the right financial incentives, you know, having the best day of his life, that's a separate collection of issues the kind of the logistics and sociology about it and, and, and so much of this is uh you know as we see like in, in the tour de france is 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 logistics and sociology
0: yes no no doubt the, the, there's a lot to it and uh i try and tell my sports nutrition students you know sometimes you, you you have to it's not it's not just a question of trying to work out what interventions you should do you sometimes got to recognize that, you shouldn't do interventions because quite frankly that's not what they should be focusing on. And that can be a problem with coaches and practitioners, particularly the new ones, is they're so eager to get their athletes to do things. And you said this earlier that nowadays in particular, I guess from what you're saying, is they're being asked to do so many things, which if I refer back to the podcast before last with Shona Halson is, um, and then previous to that, a uh, few few ones before that with Neil Walsh about immune immune system and with Mike Gleason also, we had the similar conversation. Life stress can be yeah, a significant right. limiting factor, and, and maybe we're, we're overdoing it. We're overcomplicating our athletes' lives.
1: So, so, do you know who Chuck Daly is, Lauren? No, I don't. Forgive me. For Ch- Chuck yeah. Daly was an NBA coach who died about five years ago, six right. years ago. He, he coached the original dream team. Mm. And Daley's an interesting man because he was a basketball lifer, but he won at every level of basketball, including the NBA and the, and, and the Olympics, right? So he was coaching the 1992 Olympic team and, and he was a very flexible man and he was about 60 at the time. And, uh, some younger us coaches, including Mike Shashevsky the coach at Duke, who's won the most college games ever, at least on the men's side was an assistant. And so Krzyzewski was, Taking notes at practice one day, on a on a you know on a on a yellow pad on a on a legal pad, and Daly came up to him and said, "Michael, what are you doing?" He said, "Coach, I'm taking notes so we can uh, review practice with the players and and uh, correct any deficiencies they have and plan for the next practice." And so Daly grabs the clipboard or the or the notepad and tears it in half. And says Michael, if you're going to coach these guys, and they included Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, and Larry Bird. Oh wow! Big- yeah, I know who
0: they are. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and, and he said, if you're going to coach these guys, you're going to have to learn to ignore. <laughs>
0: Brilliant.
1: And and, yeah. and and my guess is, if if you got Sir Alex Ferguson on this on this uh, broadcast, that he might have told you the same thing. You know, that you pick your battles and and focus on a acute and, and when his teams were playing their best they did a few things better than anybody else they did more consistently than anybody else and that that one of the things he had to learn to do with these very competitive high strung men was to he had to learn when to turn a blind eye and and, and he, but on the other hand he had to learn when to assert know, but he knew when to assert himself and when to become the dominant personality that he was. And I think that's what Coach Daly was saying. And I think if you look at these people that have had been really, really successful, like Chuck Daly was, like Alex Ferguson, and, and they're very different personalities on the surface. But my guess is when you drill down, they, they, they have a, a sick sense about a few fundamentals to focus on no matter what, focusing on the things that they can clearly control, and my guess is that they've all learned to ignore. Yeah, you know, which is the hardest thing to do is to learn to, and it's hard when you're doing clinical medicine. It's hard to do. No, I agree. I um,
0: this has come up a few times in conversations on this podcast, but with uh, with a guy um, on your side of the uh, of the pond, um, Sean Arendt from Rutgers University, um, we were talking about this sort of thing and um, the phrase came up while well, he said it. Um, I won't claim credit. Um, you know, when we're thinking about these things, it's very much a case you can do it, but you have to ask yourself, should I do it?
1: And, one of my and, buddies here, yeah, one of, one of the yeah. best cardiologists at the Mayo Clinic, I've seen him tell a patient, we can do we can do this to you, but I'm not sure we're doing it for you. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Somebody same, the same idea. Medicine. Yeah, same idea. And, and, and you see, you know and, and ed caesar who who is a person who you might want to get to know who's written this terrific book about two hours and, and is uh a, a journalist there in the uk ed has said you know why don't you write a book about running or a book about sport and i said I, I have it's three haikus or three short phrases one is my training haiku run a lot of miles some of them faster than race pace rest once in a while and that's a five seven five haiku my next one is uh, even shorter than that is make your hard days hard and your easy days easy and my third uh comment and i was quoted in the new york times about this is that anybody who's been a serious endurance athlete for very long is a closet religious mystic (laughs) and and they've had the experience of flow sort of -of out-of-body experiences and and if you understand those three things maybe quit
0: yeah, I think that last point's going to uh, haunt me for a while. But uh, <laughs> no, brilliant, brilliant. Well, I mean, I, I guess when I uh, when my kids are they're a bit young still, but when they're older, and if they're like I want to be an athlete, I might be do something else. <laughs> it's a lot easier. Your life would be a lot easier if you do
1: something well, else. you know, I, I was lucky yeah. in my own athletic career. I was coached by one of my coaches was a man named Willie Williams, who mm. had been a terrific sprinter at San Jose State under a man named uh, Bud Winter who's written this terrific book, and Coach Winter's long dead, called Relax and Win. And Coach Winter was a physical educator, and in World War II, he trained fighter pilots, and he noticed the people who were the best dog fighters were the most relaxed characters. And it, certainly if you read about the people who won the Battle of Britain and other things, some of these guys were, were very nonchalant individuals. And so Coach Winter developed specific relaxation drills for his fighter pilots. He later applied them to his track athletes in San Jose State. And if you look at Usain Bolt's coach, was coached by somebody who ran for Bud Winter. And I guarantee you, Usain Bolt does Bud Winter's relaxation drills. And, you know, the clowning around at the end of the race, watch Bolt's face at about 40 or 50 meters. And as hard as he's running, there's his face is, I mean, it's, it's like something out of... Uh, Yoda. I mean it's it's he's absolutely focused and relaxed.
0: I remember seeing a picture of him and um as he's overtaking someone he's just he just takes a look which uh, he's glancing over sort of relaxed yeah. look over his
1: shoulder. Yeah, is, I mean,
0: you maybe be are right. I think you're right. He's yeah. a
1: relax and and that's why he's so terrific under pressure, yeah. you know, even when yeah. he's had a little bit of I mean he's just a superior physical talent. But, but so and I think that's the other thing, the psychological aspects is how do you train people to put forth a maximum ex- effort, focused, but also stay relaxed and, and, and let the world so we hear about the flow, we hear about the zone, we hear about this, yeah. we hear about that. And the, I think the, the, the final frontier is for, for the, you know, the personal trainers, the strength and conditioning coaches, the coaches out there listening is how do they help their athlete learn to get in the zone more frequently, find the zone, stay in the zone, and, and take advantage of all the tremendous training and work they've done so that they can be their best when their best is required.
0: See, I think I'm in that realm myself. Uh, I mean, I'm getting more, a lot more experience now, but you know, we are being bombarded as s coaches or sports scientists with information all day long. Um, there's a lot of journals out there. Some right. good ones, not some not so good ones, open access. And, you know, I mean, it is, it is easy to be reading all day long and still barely dip your toe in the literature on any given topic. Um, and when you do start to read stuff, some of it is pretty exciting. Uh, and I'm thinking, um, you know, a lot of novel stuff's coming up, like the whole blood flow restriction stuff. I mean, there's all sorts yeah. of stuff that's been coming into into play and it is very tempting for us to want to try this stuff out what, right. what, what 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 would you say to coaches and scientists who are looking at this science and going wow oh, that sounds amazing
1: so um, so, so yeah. i get i get a lot of questions from my physician colleagues who don't know much about sports sciences you know uh, and they say you know my son johnny or my daughter sally's you know 12 13 14 years old they're interested, they're doing well in their youth league, you know, what can I do to help them get better, you know, should Johnny be weight training, and so what I do is I go to Amazon, and I download a picture of a pull-up bar, and I say, do you have a pull-up bar at your house, and when Johnny can do 10 pull-ups, he should think about weight training, or when Johnny can do 50 push-ups, my other favorite thing is to send people a jump rope, and 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 so I think we can do all of these things But my question for your friends in the strength and conditioning community is how many pull-ups can your athletes do? Are you, are they jumping rope or doing you know these kind of old-school footwork drills and when they've met, ma- you know um, It's too bad. You know I, one of the things I've learned or decided to learn to do this year is juggle ah, yes. uh, because, uh, Yeah, you know so is your is your is your is your athlete can your athlete juggle and so some of these very very simple things. So I I would return to kind of uh, you know, so I would ask yourself what are the four or five key things they can be doing. I mean, have you seen the training of the skier Michaela Schifrin? No, who's I have not, no. Walking over, uh, you know, she's walking over uh, some uneven surface, some uh, Bosu balls juggling.
0: Mm. Amazing.
1: You know, and somebody said she can ride a unicycle and juggle. Wow. Now that seems to me to be pretty pretty interesting stuff. And, it, yeah. and I mean. It, doesn't require a lot of equipment doesn't require a lot of this or a lot of that. So I think that, that people, um, you know, and I I go to these high end conferences and people talk about brain stimulation and all kinds of other interesting things. And I bring a jump rope and say, you know, for 999, you can get a jump rope and, 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 uh, improve your footwork, improve your cardiovascular fitness, improve your quickness, improve your balance, and and you know, and I and I think actually one of the one of the, the things that you mentioned you work sometimes with boxers, one of the things that's sort of interesting, Lauren, is that you know, boxing's become a bit taboo because it's atavistic brain injury and 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 so on and so forth. But boxing at one point was considered sort of a generic skill that people should learn. And there were boxing classes at, at, at Harvard and Yale and Oxford and Cambridge and all the places. And boxing skills, speed bags, heavy bags, uh, jumping rope, were are all seen as, as, I mean, we're, we're foundational uh, elements of conditioning. So I'm not encouraging people to go out and box, but uh, if you look at the sorts of training the boxers did, uh, you could do a lot worse in trying to develop generic athletic skills that would be useful for people. So I would, I, I you know... I guess, you know, the older I get, the better I was, or the older I get, the better things were. But but I think what's interesting to me is what's been forgotten. Yeah,
0: well, I, I, this is a perfect segue, because I know we're, we're coming to the end of this now. But uh, um, I had a really interesting chat with um, uh, Dr. Marco Cardinale, who is in charge of the, yeah. uh, um, you know, for science and medicine for, for the British uh, for Team GB uh, for, I think, three Olympics. Um, this was when we suddenly got really successful um but but the thing the overwhelming message at the end of that was um not over-sciencing stuff
1: i um, couldn't agree more
0: yeah yeah um so speaking of which and we 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 briefly touched into this uh, before we started recording but you know i think we're at a point now where we're heavily invested in science informing practice we have terms like evidence-based uh, I much prefer the term evidence informed i as a practitioner I'm not a robot I don't want to train robots but evidence is important but w- what about you know um, practice informing science rather than the other way around what I mean what
1: do you think about that I, I think in every area I work in both clinical medicine and in, in, in sport, I think it's a two-way street hmm. and what people have to see this is is a servant volley between the Experience of the coaches, the the athletes, and in my case, the patients and and the generic clinicians. Uh, What we can learn from small end studies, end of one observations, you think about the terrific study of Jim Hagberg and Eddie Coyle on on, uh, uh, control of ventilation in patients with McArdle's disease, four subjects, really turned the whole anaerobic threshold concept on its head. So I think you can learn a lot from those sorts of things. I think you can learn a lot from randomized clinical trials. I think you can learn a lot from Retrospective look backs at data mining and the question is how do you have dialogue between the two or between the three or four or five? To try to get things going and I think then the other thing is 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 you know, it's the statement uh, Good judgment comes from uh, requires experience experience requires bad judgment And I think that that you know, we're 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 foolish if we don't try to engage some of the older coaches and scientists in discussions about and somebody you know we all have a ton to learn from people like ron Ma and dave costell and some of the, the athletes they were working with in the 60s and 70s as we move things forward and and um and that's why 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 you know my question always is to to uh, you know my colleagues about their kids is do you does your kid have a jump rope do you have a pull-up bar yeah so let's not over complicate these things and 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 uh, you know, all things being equal. Attention, it, attention, you, attention. Code 45, Joseph 3 b from
0: 221. You're in a, it, it uh, sounds uh, like you're being institutionalized, don't you? I am
1: institutionalized. <laughs> right here, uh, yeah. I, I, you can turn the speakers off, but you can't turn the speakers off uh, for the PA system for uh, Codes of various sorts and other other safety announcements and and, and so forth. So they always have a chance to uh, visit with us if they need to, which is good. But but anyways, to go back to it, it is it is you know I mean um, people can always do pull ups. They can always jump rope. Uh, you know I'm I'm always um, shocked when you go to modern playgrounds and you don't see the sorts of monkey bars that we had when I was a kid growing up in the 60s. Wow.
0: And,
1: and, and uh, you know, I, I who knows, maybe the kids will fall or something like that or some other horrible thing will happen to them. But I, I think I think one of the things I'd like to see more is, is people to go back, examine the critical fundamentals in any field of life, come up with programs that, that help people adhere to those fundamentals, whether it's diet, exercise, whether we're talking about training elite athletes, or helping somebody stave off frailty as they get older or somebody lose a bit of weight identify the key few key fundamentals will come up with a way to communicate them activate them and execute them and then yeah. and I think if we do that it, we'll get more good athletes we'll get a healthier population and we'll have more vigorous and fit older people Lauren yeah no i i well said i completely agree um so look
0: we we'll, we'll we'll wrap this up um here uh, before we get snowed in and before I'm literally on five percent battery left on my uh, on my phone and we've done well mike we have done really well here um but uh, we you know we, we sort of talked about the physiology of champions um your paper there uh and uh, we talked about all sorts of stuff uh, we've had a few red herrings here and there but um that we've been pretty much there but as it relates to differentiating um, people who are you know half decent performers to champions right. what what are the what are the key things then that we really should be looking at when you talk about mastering the basics what what are we talking about
1: well certainly VO, vo2 max is a ticket into the game mm. and 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 as is your lactate threshold but I, but i think you know, they they all get you sort of there, but I think running economy is sort of the fine game that helps differentiate, uh, you know, all things being equal differentiate the, the, uh, you know, the super elite from the the next elite. And then I think also, you know, uh, I heard Bill Bowerman say at one time, and this is very difficult to quantify, you know, it's not how much uh, dog's in the fight, it's how much fight's in the dog. Yeah, yeah, um, well... the super mentally tough people who just can or just seem to be able to be there when it really counts. Yeah,
0: Now the, the the growth of sports psychology or performance psychology has unraveled amazing performance in people. I, I think that exciting things will come from that. Un- unleashing the true champions right. out of people. Um, and I think um, uh, actually my, things telling me my battery's about to go. Um, listen, um, I think we'll we we'll, we
1: we'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, let me leave yeah let me leave you learn for one thought for the people listening. Please do, yes. Ask yourself what can you stop doing. You know, turn, flip the question around and rather saying what what else can we do to make person X better, what can we stop doing?
0: Yeah.
1: And and, and and that might actually sometimes be a useful exercise.
0: Yeah. No that's a very good question.
1: Um, look,
0: there's a lot of um, there's a lot of papers uh, here. Um, I, I'm going to link these on the uh, the page for this podcast. There's all, all sorts of stuff people can read. I'll, I'll link to your um, Sports Illustrated articles because they're, they're talking of science to practice. There's a great transition of that knowledge there. Um, people can follow you on Twitter. What's your Twitter ID? Uh,
1: it's at it's at Dr. MJ Joiner.
0: Brilliant. Yeah. So we'll make sure. People get to follow you on that. Um, just to remind everyone, there's a lot of podcasts uh, to catch up with and listen to. Uh, one way or the other, we've discussed and linked to some of them, as well as the other articles and educational things that we do at Guru Performance. But um, I would like to say thank you very much for sharing your time with us, Mike. It's been it's been awesome. Uh, hopefully, you're not going to get snowed in and stuck in that office with those uh, with those uh, overhead sounds that you're getting. <laughs> All right. Terrific. We'll see you later, Lauren. Great to visit. Thank thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, that's all, folks. I am, of course, and Laurel Banner can look forward to bringing uh, another episode back to you very soon.